the Seahawks 360 podcast, a sports ethos production where we look at the Seahawks from every angle every week. I'm your host, Candace Hagens, and it is a pleasure and a privilege to talk Hawks with you. As you guys know, I have been on a hiatus. I have not been able to put out regular production. Passing the loss of my father, I have taken some time off, and I appreciate you guys giving me the time and the space to do that. But I definitely miss talking Hawks, and we are back. And there is a lot to discuss. Your Seattle Seahawks have been busy, so we're going to get into everything you need to know about the Seahawks offseason. We're going to be grading every move that the Seahawks have made, and we're going to go in chronological order because it only makes sense, right? I've been gone a while, so let's start back with it. We're going to get into it starting now. So first of all, let me just say I 100% commend the Seattle Seahawks for being as active as they have been this offseason. There, in my opinion, has been a true dynamic, a true shift of power within the Seahawks organization. I think there is a distinct print that John Snyder is officially in control. Before, it was more Pete Carroll. He was a VP of personnel. If you go and look on the Seattle Seahawks website, he is no longer listed under that position. And so if you just think I'm being a conspiracy theorist, I believe that this is proof that I'm right. (laughs) If you go look at the website, but I believe that this shift took place personally before the trade of Russell Wilson. Everybody was talking about this meeting with Jody Allen and was sort of Everybody was wondering, was Pete going to get fired? Was John going to get fired? And nobody ended up getting fired. And it was kind of a weird, nobody heard anything for days. And then it came out that, you know, they were still going to be in place. Shortly thereafter, you know, a couple months later, ultimately Russ was traded, et cetera, et cetera. There was a changing of the guard because I believe that Jody Allen did have questions about the team and where it was going and some of the moves that were made that got them to this point to where they were even in a position where Russell wanted to be traded. And there were reasons between poor signings, poor free agency moves, just a poor utilization of both free agency and the draft. And I think Pete got too caught up in projects and upside and he just no longer had a good pulse for who would be the best fit for the, Seahaw- for the Seahawks and how to manage their funds. John Snyder has taken over and he had an amazing, probably it's too early to say, but maybe a historically good draft class. They had a great pickup signing in Uchina Nawosu. And really, all the all of the moves that they made in the offseason, given the circumstances, were really solid to set them up for the future. And it did. But this season was even more critical because it was going to determine would it set the Seahawks back or would it help them move forward. And everything that we've seen so far, in my opinion, has been incredible. Without a shadow of a doubt, I've loved a lot of the moves. We'll go through each one and talk about them. But they've been smart. You can follow the logic. You can see that they're going for players with younger upside. That'll be a common thing that we talk about. These are younger players. When the Seahawks used to basically have a 30-plus club, when, when Russ was the quarterback, they used to just sign these guys, these Band-Aid guys, who may or may not have anything left, who were past their primes. They just wouldn't work out. And sometimes they even overpay for them, like Greg Olson. This is this has not been anything like this. You still got hungry young players who have some experience to bring to the table, but who also have an opportunity to potentially be ascending stars. And that's what this team absolutely needs. So just want to shout out John Snyder. Uh, another thing, if you're not if you're not 
sure that I'm right about the change of the power. John Snyder having his own radio show it speaks volumes. I believe he wants people to know that he's the guy making these decisions. That he's the, that so that there is a better understanding of what John Snyder's role is within this organization because it's really it's been a question mark. Everybody kind of assumed that he was Pete Carroll's lackey to some extent, and that may have been true. I think they had somewhat of a partnership, but I think John's earned his way. And he's looking to prove and show everybody that he is in charge. Whether that has to do with a potential new buyer, if the team is going to sell or not, I'm not going to speculate on this episode. But that's possible. Either way, he is more visible. He is more public. And I think it's a great thing for the organization. Now, let's get into these grades. So I'm going to go, like I said, in chronological order from the first signing on down, give you my thoughts. If I like it, don't like it, and why. And uh, feel free, if you guys are listening on YouTube, leave it, leave some thoughts in the comments. Love to hear what signings you loved, what were your favorites, and so on and so forth. Now, let's get into it and talk some Hawks. So the first signing that was made was Jason Myers. They signed kicker Jason Myers to a four-year, $21 million deal. And it was one of the first moves that they did. Now, a lot of people had a problem with this deal because they felt like that was a lot of money for a kicker who was 32 years old, who had been inconsistent at best, and he has been inconsistent. He's had one good year, one, well, let me say this, one great year, one bad year, one great year, one bad year. And they, you know, essentially gave him a pretty, a pretty good sizable pay raise. But if you really look at it, Jason Myers has had a better, even though he's had a down year, He's been a better player in some ways, statistically, in terms of field goal percentage than even Justin Tucker. Like this past year, he had a better field goal percentage than even Justin Tucker. And he's the highest paid kicker out there. So I think it was well-deserved, well-earned to bet on his upside. Even if you don't get a, even if you have kind of a down year for him next year, even if he continues his pattern of a good year, bad year, then on a four-year contract, you're still going to see the optimum level. I mean, he was an all-pro level kicker for you this year and you just don't find those everywhere it's been plenty of times that there's been games especially this past season ruined because the kicker cannot kick anything they cannot do their one job so while Seahawks fans are you you guys may remember there's some there were some rough days in the kicker day so let's go ahead and pay the man I know he's 32 years old but being a kicker that doesn't really matter um it's not that significant of a pay raise from what he was getting before he was already getting about $5 million per year anyway. And that's still kind of what this deal averages out to be. It's a slight pay bump for him, but not anything significant. I don't think people realize how much money he was making on the previous deal or his cap, his cap hit last year. So with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and grade this a B-. minus. If you could have got it cheaper, that would have been great. You'd love to pay less money for your kicker, but at the end of the day, when you got quality, you keep quality, and I feel like that's the case at every position. So there was no reason to really move on from him. I think any move on to somebody else just would have been a downgrade. That's just the reality of the situation. And so good move by the Seahawks overall, and we move on. So the next move that was made by the Seattle Seahawks was to sign fullback slash linebacker and special teams ace Nick Ballore. And this move was far more panned than the last move. And early in this point in the offseason, it was not looking great for your Seattle Seahawks. Uh, they signed Nick Ballore to a two-year, $6.6 million deal. 
And I give this grade a D minus. I was not a fan of this move. I, I don't mind bringing back Nick Ballore. I really don't. I just feel like he's more of a guy that you pay closer to that minimum for, uh, given that he's not a guy you can really depend on at linebacker. He's not a guy you want out there on that field. He's a breaking case of absolute emergency kind of guy. And they really don't use him that much in the offense. Now, if they utilize him more in the offense at the fullback position, I'd be a little bit more happy with that. But they've actually used Derrick Young toward the later, later, later season, late, towards the later part of the season. Excuse me. They used, that, they used Derrick, Derrick Young instead of Nick Ballore at times. And Derrick Young did a great job. So I'm just kind of going, you know, special teams is important, and it is. Uh, but is it worth spending, you know, $3 million on, almost $4 million, three points? $75 million per year. I just think that's a little bit much. It's a little rich for a guy who I'm not sure had much leverage. He's 34 years old. He's a special team specialist. I'm not sure how many teams out here have much leverage. And that's really what it comes down to for me. I don't. My, I, I love Nick Ballore. Having him on the team, he's a great guy. I understand he's a locker room guy. He's Everybody loves him. He's kind of like um, Luke was for the Seahawks. He kind of gives that same energy and uniqueness about him. But to me, if he if he goes somewhere else, I mean, who's who who's paying him that much money? I, I just don't feel like I just feel like the Seahawks want to reward a guy for the culture more than anything. And I and I'm not sure at 34 years old that's the best thing to be doing and the best utilization of their resources. So uh, D minus for me. I will. It's not an F because he does present to some level to a value, but I just think that level of to a value is very uh, questionable to say the least. So um, not high on that move at all, but I was high on the signing of Phil Haynes, who they brought back, was really excited about this move. Uh, Phil Haynes is 27 years old right now, and he has played, he played 15 games last year for the Seahawks. He started in three games. He started five games in all. So you've got a younger guy, who's really had to work his way up and improve himself. He struggled with injuries really early in his career. It was really hard for us to really see him thrive. But in the moments he had, he showed himself to be an extremely promising prospect. Uh, They signed him to a one-year, $4 million deal up to $5 million with incentives. And I think that's an excellent deal for him. It's potentially starter caliber money for right guard at that position. He's young. He's motivated. It's on a one-year deal, so he's got to prove that he can stay healthy. He's got to prove that he can stay be consistent because he wasn't really that good last year. Last year was not a strong year for him. Um, but he's got he's got he he can definitely be. Um, I, I think it's worth giving him that opportunity, right? Especially at a four million dollar cost. It's worth seeing if a guy who's in your program who grew up through your system can take an opportunity. He used to rotate out with Gabe Jackson a lot last year. And I feel like to some extent, that's part of the reason why he wasn't as consistent. I think the guy can be a lot better if he just would have had consistent snaps. But it's not easy to just hop in and out of the lineup, switching back and forth and trying to maintain the chemistry with the line. Really, the offensive line is a rhythm position and it's a chemistry position. And 
The rotation worked for the Seahawks overall, but I don't think it was the best outlook for a guy like Phil Haynes. It really benefited a guy like Gabe Jackson who needed to get off the field and needed to maintain being fresh more than it benefited a guy like Phil Haynes, who's a younger player, who's not experienced in terms of starting and could really use those consistent reps in order to to really shine in his role. And I'm not just talking, you know, smack when I say that, right? I'm not just saying uh, anything. I think that's pretty much backed up by the stats. So overall, he was graded a a 57.7 on PFF. That was his grade, right? Uh, That was slightly better than Gabe Jackson, who graded out at a 56.7, right? It wasn't much better, but slightly better. But... In the two games that they started him at right guard, because they started him this first game with the Denver Broncos, he started at left guard, and he did terribly. So (laughs) it was not a good game for him. But the two games he actually started at right guard, he actually averaged a 75 grade in PFF. So that's why I think the Seahawks look at that and they see a guy with potential upside if he can stay healthy, because he was really good in pass pro. Um, He had an 80 against the the LA Chargers when they had that big game. It was week six and seven for him. He had a 69 grade against Arizona and an 80 grade against the Chargers. Really impressive stuff. And it was, it's really important to see that when he starts, that's when he played his best. I think that's what's the most encouraging thing about this signing. And that's why I give this signing a B. All right. So, I'm not just going to grade your offseason, like, the signings, right? Who they signed, who they re-signed. I'm going to grade everything because it's Seahawks 360, right? And we look at everything from every angle. So, I I can shout from the rooftops. They released Gabe Jackson, and I grade that an A+. It is an A+. I was calling for it all last season. If you listened to this podcast last season, I was ready for Gabe Jackson to go. And to be honest, the move with the whole rotation and him and Phil Haynes, I was team just let Phil Haynes start last season. Like, if it were me, I wouldn't have been doing Gabe Jackson because he, I mean, especially when you needed him the most against the division opponents, he was absolutely no good to you. And you'd rather get those reps to the guy with higher upside and more experience. Gabe Jackson could barely stay out on the field because he's just getting older and his knee wasn't good. And he didn't really have much of an anchor. If you watch his, watch him on film, he would just get mauled at the point of attack, in my opinion, far, far too often. And that wasn't going to get any better. It wasn't. And then he still was owed almost $12 million in cap space. There was absolutely no way they should have kept Gabe Jackson. I think they kept him longer than they even should have last year. But I understand the logic in, you know, keeping some veterans around when you got so many rookies. That's the only reason why I believe he started. So it was absolutely the right thing to do to move on from that guy, you know, save that money in cap space and help build your team and put that, invest that money back into your young talent. All right. The biggest signing of the year following the relief of Gabe Jackson, the, the one of the most important signings, I'll say that, was the signing of Geno Smith. And there is no way, whether you wanted Geno back, you didn't want Geno back, you feel like he can do well next year, you feel like he's not going to do well next year, whatever you think about Geno Smith, there is no way you cannot like this contract because the Seahawks absolutely knocked 
the ball out of the park. 100%. First of all, I love that it's a three-year deal. He signed a three-year deal, $105 million, $105 million. And everybody was like, oh, that sounds like a lot of money. It's $35 million on average. Well, when you really look at the details, when you really get into the thick of it, you learn that this is an extremely incentive-driven deal. It's really more like $3 million, $75 million in terms of the base salary. The, the 2023 cap hit is only $10 million. Only $10 million for a guy who was a pro ball quarterback last year. Sign me up. And it's structured in a way that they can get out of that the first year if they really wanted to. Now, I don't think they will. They're going to keep Geno at least two years. I feel like in part because, and this is, this is me a little bit kind of, I don't know, putting pieces together. But I, when I watched the interview, the press conference with Geno Smith and John Snyder and how grateful John Snyder was to Geno being amenable during this process and being a team player about the process and, and really sacrificing money because Geno Smith could have absolutely gotten more money than this. He absolutely could have gotten a Daniel Jones level contract or he could have gotten maybe not a Derek Carr level contract, but he could have gotten a Daniel Jones type of contract. Most certainly he could have gotten way more than $25 million per year. He definitely could have gotten more than that, but he intentionally decided, he talked about it in the press conference, he wanted to leave money to make sure that the team would be able to build around him. He's aware that he is at his best when the team is at his best, and he put his money where his mouth is. And that's not something you see from not just any quarterback, but hardly any other players. The only exception being Tom Brady, who had a supermodel as a wife, I mind you, and to, and to some extent, Patrick Mahomes, but he's still more than definitely got his value. But by him doing the 10-year deal, it ultimately is still a team-friendly type of thing. But that's just not something you see from any player. And it speaks so much to the character of who Gino is. And it's refreshing to see that. And I feel like John feels that way. So I said all that to say this, that because Gino was so amenable and flexible and working around the team and what they need, I think John's, one, done his best to absolutely put a great team in front of Gino. You can see that. He's been, I think he's doing everything possible to get Gino everything he needs to succeed. Because, in part, because he's grateful for that. After dealing with Mark Rogers for as many years as he dealt with Mark Rogers, I'm certain John can appreciate dealing with Gino Smith and his agent. And two, I really think that they believe in Gino and they want to give him that opportunity. And so because of Gino betting on himself, John and Pete are big culture guys, right? Um, if you're going to sacrifice for the team, they're going to sacrifice for you. I just feel like they, they take care of their guys. That's what they would say, right? They take care of their guys. You're not going to see Gino out of here before two years. I'd be astonished. I mean, he'd have to absolutely plummet his stock in order to be out of here altogether. Because uh, I even think if he had a bad year and he got benched, they'd still give him a, another shot. Maybe they'd sign another quarterback or do something else. But I think they still keep him on that deal. Could be wrong. But it is extremely incentive-driven. Um, and as a result, I think it'll be, well, it has proven to be team-friendly. Uh, Seahawks' Brandon Nelson, I want to shout him out for some of this information for to specify. And one thing I learned when listening to one of his videos was there are two ways that the cap space is, is going to be divided in terms of what incentives are going to hit affect the cap and what incentives won't. And the way it'll work is none of these incentives for
Ferdino will even apply until next year, which is another favorite because he did not have to have it structured that way. So no matter what Gino does this year, his cap hit is $10 million, period. That's all he's getting. Now next year, if he hits certain incentives, those incentives will be added to his cap hit for next year. And from there on, it works like if a player has met an incentive like 4,000 passing yards or uh, 30 touchdowns or less than 10 turnovers, if they meet a certain amount of incentives on their contract, if they hadn't met them the previous season, it is considered to be a likely uh, incentive. And then that money is calculated into the cap hit. Now, if it was something like win a playoff game because Gino did not do that, then those would be considered unlikely and that would not count against that year's cap space. So that's just, if, if you're wondering as you go through these deals, how some of these incentives work, um, that's just some information that's important to note about how this affects the cap space. But the good thing about the way Gino is structured, he is, is again, it doesn't affect it into the following year. Um, which means every year he's betting on himself and you're getting the best possible version of Gino because he's motivated to play for money. You don't have to worry about him getting comfortable. That's why I said even if you don't like Geno Smith or if you didn't feel like he was the best guy or if you would rather have drafted a guy, however, however you felt about it, you're getting a version of Geno that's not fat and happy, right? <laughs> you're still getting Geno at his best, a Geno that's motivated to continue to bet on himself. He's choosing to do that. And I can't say, for a guy who's never gotten this much money in his life at all, I can't say enough about it. I Obviously, I've talked about it for a few minutes now, but um, shout out to Gino, shout out to John Snyder, shout out to the whole Seahawks front office, Gino's agent, for really making this happen. Huge deal. So, A++++, I'd give it more pluses if I could. Following that excellent sign-up, that resign, which was right before free agency tampering period officially opened. When when the Seahawks tampering, when the tampering period for the league did officially open, boy, did the Seahawks make a splash. Your Seattle Seahawks did the biggest free agent signing, as you probably well know, unless you've been living under a rock. Uh, they signed Draymond Jones of the Denver Broncos to a three-year, $51 million contract, I give this an A, most certainly. Because one, the Seahawks have never, ever been involved in the tampering period of free agency, and they never paid that much money for a free agent, if you believe it or not. Uh, that That's their biggest signing to date. And it's another one of those situations where it's a young guy. He's 26 years old. He's been he's played in the Nick Fangio defense, so he's familiar with what the Seahawks want to do. You know he fits size-wise what you want to do. He's had 10-plus QB hits in each of the last three seasons. He's had at least 5.5 sacks in each of the last five uh, three seasons. And that was only once. He generally had 6.5 sacks. So he's a guy you can count on. And when you compare it to a Javon Hargrave, a guy who's older, a guy who, yes, he had a career year, but he had it on a historically good defense with all of the best players and a stacked roster. So how much of that was him and how much was that of that was him benefiting from others? When up to that point, he has the same, I'd say, more inconsistent production. And, you know, maybe gave you not that far off from what, what Draymond Jones has been able to consistently get you. In fact, there's been times where Draymond Jones had a better year. 
than Javon Hargrave from some perspectives when you look at sacks and things. So, look, I, between the two, if I had to choose, especially given what the 49ers paid for Hargrave, if it were me, most certainly I prefer Draymond Jones. He's the better get, younger, more motivated. He's coming out of a bad situation. He's going to appreciate the Seahawks culture. He's going to be, he's going to want to play and he's going to want to win. Another guy who hasn't been to the playoffs and he's going to, like Shelby Harris, have an opportunity to play, you know, and play and fight for the playoffs for the first time ever. That's going to be a huge deal for him. And I feel like it's similar to the Nichenna Wosu type of signing. A guy, and he has started. Nichenna hadn't really had much starting experience versus Draymond Jones. You know he's a capable starter. But I still think there's a lot to unlock from the guy. And people ding him and they say, you know, when, when you hear some Broncos fans talk, or media, I was like media, talk about him, they'll say the Seahawks may be slightly overpaid. And so that's why I didn't give it an A+. Plus. Maybe. I don't think they really overpaid that much, in my opinion. I think that if that's what you got to pay to get a guy, you get him. Especially a guy like that. I just think they kind of undervalue him, maybe. And they do, you know, the standard for for pass rush in Broncos country is very different from the standard of pass rush in the Seahawks. So, for the Seahawks, that's worth paying. Maybe 6.5 sacks isn't that much to... Broncos country. They they had Von Miller for years. So I get that. Seahawks hadn't had anybody since Frank Clark, really. And so um, that's a guy you, you you pay a little bit more for if you're going to pay for a guy. And the knock on him is that he's missed four games. He missed, he only played 13 games last year. He played 16 before that. I think the guy, he's, I think he plays through injury, which is, I commend. So he's, he's not missed a ton of games in his career. The most games he missed was four games last year. And let's be honest, Draymond Jones could have played. He, he could have played if he wanted to, if there was anything to play for. But the Broncos gave us a number five pick. They were terrible last year. And I think, I think I've heard that he made an intentional decision to rest, recuperate. Yes, he could have played through it. But given all the drama, given everything going on, and given that the team was going absolutely nowhere, it, he just made the decision that was best for him to focus on his health, and I understand and respect that decision. So that's not even a huge knock I have on him. An A for me. As a result of the Draymond Jones signing, the Seahawks then released Shelby Harris, which was a little sad, I'll be honest. Now, the Seahawks did save $9 million, but I get it. I mean, I say it's a B-minus move. Just, you hate to see who a guy who was the best, one of the best defensive players on your squad go away. But then again, you have to consider that it was a terrible defensive squad. <laughs> and the defensive line was bad. And so is the is the best player on a bad defensive line worth keeping? Eh, that's debatable. And I understand that. So he saved them $9 million. He's a he's an aging player. He wasn't really consistent in terms of health. You didn't really know if you could rely on him health-wise or not last season. And he only gave you two sacks as a result. So I understand why they didn't feel like he was worth the cost of keeping. I'd love for him to bring him back, though. I, I, I like Shelby Harris, and he'd be able to play with Draymond Jones. But Shelby Harris seems to be the kind of chip on his shoulder guy. I'm not sure if his pride would let him come back to the Seahawks. But we'll just see how the market pans out for him. But that's a guy I'd – if he could be a death piece – That'd be huge. Well, really, I want him back to start, and it would give it would give extra depth to the line. Is run defense his strength? No, but I think with him and Draymond Jones, man, it'd be incredible. I'd do a lot to to get that guy. Not a lot, but I hope they can get him back. 
at a cheaper cost. Would love to have him back and join him on the team. And along those same lines, after releasing Shelby Harris, they signed old Seahawks friend, Jaron Reed. And I gotta be honest, I'm not high on this one. Um, it's just not one I got excited for, you know, after the signing of Draymond Jones. I wasn't a fan. I give it a C plus. Like, it's okay. Jaron's okay. Jaron. Jaron's okay. You know, he really struggled on the Chiefs. He was just bad. You know, he's a guy who left the Seahawks because he didn't want to restructure his contract and he felt offended by being asked. He really felt like he deserved a raise. So he asked to be released, went on the open market, and ultimately ended up taking way less money than he would have had he just restructured his contract with the Seahawks. Lost money, left it on the table. A lot of missed opportunity for the guy. Um, really unfortunate. I feel like his pride got in the way on that one. And I think he realized it because apparently he turned down more money to come back to the Seahawks. I think he realized he he missed. Yeah, he, that was a mistake. <laughs> and it was. The Seahawks missed him in some ways. In some ways. And the and, and he obviously missed that money. And probably the Seahawks culture. You know, it's just it wasn't good for him. Now, he did have a bit of a bounce back year with the Packers, especially from a um, – well, he, he was inconsistent. I'll say he was overall a better player than he had shown to be on the Chiefs, uh, where he was just really, in my opinion, a complete liability. He was a valuable player at times, but he just was sort of inconsistent, like not the same guy from snap to snap, from game to game. Sometimes he can just get wiped out and overwhelmed. But he seemed to play better in the 3-4 defense, which is why the Seahawks were interested in bringing him back to begin with. Completely understand that. And so they signed him to a two-year, $10.8 million deal. Um, he had 2.5 sacks himself. So I'm just saying, if you released Shelby Harris, you know, I don't know. I just feel like I'd rather have Shelby Harris than Jan Reed, like, by far. And that's why I sort of say C+. Plus. I mean, Jaren's okay. He had 52 tackles. And there's some areas with, it, with which he's, he shined. But he's not even that consistent. He's known as He was known as a better run stuffer in the Seattle defense. But... He wasn't that for the Packers last year in that 3-4 defense. So, and maybe that's part because of scheme, but yeah. Yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm C, C, C plus for me. Not high on it. I'm not mad at it, but it's just not something that got me excited. I, particularly, I don't want him starting. I think Jaron Reed is better, in my opinion, as a rotational defensive lineman. He can be great at that. I think he can be excellent at that for you. But if you're talking about really wanting to compete and push the 49ers to win the division, you got to have somebody not named Jaron Reed in your starting defensive front going, going up against those guys. Just need a little bit more than that. So we'll see. Um, the John Snyder did mention that they're still looking for defensive linemen. Shelby Harris is still out there as a potential option. They can draft guys. So it's it's not our, it's not over by far. Um, but if they just add something else to that, I feel a whole lot better about that deal. But as a result of the Jaron Reed signing, they released Quentin Jefferson, which I understood. Another player who is descending. Um, now, he was one of their better pass rushers, but he was probably one of the worst defensive lineman at the run in the league. They use that much liability. And Draymond Jones is not particularly good at the run. I didn't mention that. That's one of his areas of weakness. And so I can see how the Seahawks look at it and say, look, we're not going to have two guys who are liabilities in the run on the same defensive line again. And so you let Quentin Jefferson go, the older guy, replace him with Jaron Reed, a guy with who's younger, 
I'm not going to say he has upside, but he's got the possibility to succeed, you know, going back to the Seahawks culture in a scheme that might better fit his skill set anyway in the 3-4. And so I, I see the logic behind that. All right. We're rounding down the stretch. Now, Seahawks, as I said, a lot of moves, so we're a lot to go over, but we are rounding it down now. So uh, the, some of the more recent signings that have happened as of late, the Seahawks signed center and guard Evan Brown and signed him to a one-year $2.25 million deal. And I got to say, I'm in love with this deal. In fact, if you ask me, what were my favorite Seahawks free agent signings this year? I would say Draymond Jones and Evan Brown. And Evan Brown is a really underrated signing. It, it really is. A lot of people aren't going to be talking about it. It's not sexy, but let me tell you, let's talk about Evan Brown. So Evan Brown was a guy who played for the Detroit Lions last year, for the past two years, really. And the Detroit Lions, I mind you, have had one of the better, if not one of the best, offensive lines in the league for at least two years now. So that's a, a positive, most definitely. So he's coming from a playing on a strong offensive line and his play was solid now he played a guard a right guard last year and he wasn't as great uh he was a little bit more of a liability in the run game i think he got overpowered at points or just maybe out you know people could out speed him and just quicker i think because he's a bigger guy but in the center position he was both great at the run and the pass equally so he is 26 years old, another young guy with upside. Uh, he's got starting experience. He started 12 games for the for the Detroit Lions. Um, and when he was a center, he was rated in the top 10 in terms of pass win rate. That's incredible. Had the Seahawks ever had a center rated top 10 in pass, in pass rush run rate since what, maybe Max Unger? It's been a long time. Center play has been a problem for a long time. And I love this deal because, yes, he's young and he has starting experience, right? He's a guy who you got for dirt cheap. That's dirt cheap. And I'm surprised they were able to get him for that little money. And it's a one-year deal, so this doesn't preclude you from going and go draft a center because I think the Seahawks should draft a center too. But what the Seahawks have done is put themselves in a position to where they don't have any holes that they have to have. They're not desperate for any one position going into draft, and they can just draft for best player available. I think that we're intentional about making that point, and that's exactly how, if you're a GM, you want to move. You want to go into the draft because it's so unpredictable in order to get best value, in order to get the best players, in order to maximize what the draft can be. You have to not be in the position where you have to overdraft guys. Well, you've got to get, well, the center, I, I need a center here, so maybe the value isn't good here. Maybe I should probably try to trade down seven, eight spots to get them, but um, I don't have any trade partners available, so I'm just going to have to go and get my guy, even though it's not at best value. That's not what you want to do. You want to be able to take the draft as it comes and, and, and get the best players that you have to build your best roster. And that's exactly what the Seahawks have done. So as he, when he was a center, he had a 66.8 PFF grade. He had a 
62.4 passer rating grade and a 62.9 run rating grade. Now, you know, you'll hear me reference PFF quite a bit. PFF is not the end-all be-all. You know, it's got to match the film. Of course, I agree with that. Sometimes they don't get it right all the time. But on offensive linemen, it's pretty much the most reliable source you can have in terms of evaluating those guys. But, you know, he's pretty balanced at both. Not a real liability on either way. And that's what the Seahawks need. And some people, you know especially when they looked at his numbers from when he was a guard, were a little disappointed because, well, he seemed to be more, he seemed to be better maybe um, at the run than the pass protection. Um, he's kind of run emphasis guy. Well, look, the Seahawks kind of have somebody who can run block. So while as a center, he's, he's actually better at pass protection, or he was better at pass protection than run, protect, than, um, run blocking, I don't even care. I don't care if the guy is a better run blocker. I mean, somebody's got to be able to do it, right? Damian Lewis, who used to be a good run blocker, struggles sometimes. He struggles sometimes and that, on that left side. He's actually, he's master pro protection, but it seems to be at the cost of run run blocking it's to some to some degree. You've got Charles Cross. You've got uh, Abraham Lucas, who are both pass protection guys. Somebody has got to be able to run block, and that was a big problem down the stretch of the year was we didn't have anybody who could run block because Austin Blythe was absolutely no good, and I'm I'm so happy for his retirement because I was nervous that Seahawks were going to sign him back, and they could not. They 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 weren't. They I don't now seeing how they're moving how they're moving. I don't think they would have brought him back, but I was just nervous because old Seahawks would have brought that guy back, and he was. Seriously, the second worst center in the league by almost every metric. Anyway, off my high horse, love this move, not just because of the player and what I think is some really good upside. I think he could start for this for this team, and I think he could be so much better than people think. But even if I'm wrong, you know, they draft somebody and they compete. One, you want a competition at that position for sure. Um, even if he's not the starter, he is extremely quality depth. Some of the best depth you can get in this league. So, um, great move. A-plus on the Evan Brown signing. And then they signed Devin Bush, the first linebacker. At this point, I was getting a little nervous because they have no linebackers on this team, really. Except for Jordan Brooks, who's torn his ACL. Cody Barton ultimately went to go sign with the Washington Commanders. God bless you, Cody. On your way out. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with that. That, that. that didn't hurt my feelings at all. I think they actually had planned on bringing Cody back, and it seemed from the John Snyder interview they were a little surprised that Cody Barton ended up taking a deal somewhere else, especially so quickly. But that's how it goes sometimes. I think Cody Barton wanted a different, uh, he wanted a different setting. He wanted to be able to play behind a better defensive line, and he wanted to be able to start right. And knowing you're with Jordan Brooks, you're not the guy. I understand it. Um, so they signed Devin Bush. And Devin Bush is an interesting story. He was a top, he was a number 10 pick out of the 2019 draft, um, mostly because of his athleticism. He was one of those combine warrior kind of guys. Excellent combines, undersized, but great speed, great athleticism, extremely explosive, but undersized. And he had a good rookie year, very good rookie year. Uh, I think he was third place runner up for rookie of the year even. That's just how dynamic of a player he was. But then he tore his ACL in his sophomore year, and he just didn't seem to be the same player. Um, by not being the same player, the year he came back, he graded out a 34 PFF grade. Just awful. And he did bounce back a little bit last year, 
graded out at a 58.8. And it's not that much better than what Cody Barton gave you, to be honest. But I think it's worth it. This guy has much higher upside than a Cody Barton. Um, it's low risk, right? They decided on a one-year deal. I don't think the terms have been released. I'm assuming it's minimal. It's a minimal kind of deal. He's 24 years old. Um, a new environment could be very helpful for him. Pete knows how to get the best out of players. And, you know, it's just worth a shot. You know, I, I say B minus, right? It's I, as long as they don't have him. I, I'm not, I know. I hope he's not starting. I really do. But, you know, you got a guy with some experience, been in the league. Hopefully he can give you something else. We'll, we'll see. Um, but, you know, again, Seahawks have very low standards for linebackers this year. So, um, he didn't have to do much to be an upgrade over Cody Barton in that regard. And what I would say is one of the most interesting signings. So, I already said my favorite signings were Draymond Jones and Evan Brown. But the final signing of the Seahawks I find to be the most interesting. And that is the signing of Julian Love, defensive back from the Giants. Um... Again, young player. I think he'll be 25, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and he's extremely versatile. He can be a box safety. He can be a free safety. He can be uh, a, a slot corner nickel. And I think that's interesting because the Seahawks safety room is stacked, right? You got uh, Quandre Diggs, Jamal Adams, on paper at least. And you got Ryan Neal backing those guys up. And so on paper, would you really need another guy? Um, I would argue yes, and that's why I give this 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 a B plus. I argue yes for a couple of reasons. So one, Julian Love makes sense because the Seahawks, a big part of the rechanging of the scheme to match Jamal Adams was, and they were really excited about it, and they ran a lot of it in training camp. That was their three safety look defenses, um, the big nickel package, uh, where they have three safeties on the field. And then Jamal's kind of allowed to be in the box and hunt. And then you got two guys, two high safeties in the back. And they tried to do this with uh, Jonathan Abram a little bit towards the end, and I think in the Chiefs game in particular. And it works really well. It allows for a little bit of a hedge in terms of the liabilities they have up front in terms of the run game. And they weren't able to run this because, you know, Jamal was hurt, got hurt in the first game, and they didn't have really have much of a contingency plan. So this is a contingency plan. So one – whether Jamal, to one, it allows Jamal to take his time coming back, right? It allows that process to take its place. You, you got to hedge against Jamal Adams, which you need, right? And two, because I think he's more of a starter caliber guy than even Ryan Neal, who sometimes played at an all-safety level, is strange to say, but Ryan Neal was a little up and down. I think you want a younger guy, a lot to prove, uh, to compete, you know, and, and really you can have Quandre Diggs, Ryan Neal, and Julian Love. I love those looks, right? Would you rather have Jamal Adams? Of course you'd rather have Jamal Adams, but I think that's a great, that's a great combo. It can be extremely competitive, especially when you consider you got guys like Tariq Woolen on the field as well. So uh, a lot to be excited about with that package there. It hedges you against the Jamal Adams injury. And one thing that's not talked about as much is his ability to play nickel. He played over 600 career snaps at the nickel spot. And I think he could be a huge upgrade from Cody Bryant, who I strongly believe is playing out of position, and I think they should put him back on the outside. Now, I don't know know if they'll let Kobe and him compete. They have him then to be the nickel when he's not, so that 
Jordan loves the Julian loves the main one on the field, whether it's in a nickel look or if they're doing the big nickel package, then he's in as a third safety. I I kind of like that idea. I think Kobe should go back to the outside. I think we should see what Kobe looks like on the outside, and I think you're going to get a little bit more out of him that way. I love a competition with Tariq Woolen, um, Mike Jackson, Trey Brown, and Kobe Bryant all battling it out on the outside. Competition is king. Make Tariq re-earn his spot. I it really. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to take Tariq's spot, but it allows you a lot of depth at cornerback. And, yeah, you can still put Kobe in on the field if you want to keep him, give him some snaps, give him some reps. You can put him back at nickel from time to time, particularly against weaker opponents perhaps or opponents that don't have speedy slot corners or anything, I mean, slot wide receivers or anything like that. You can put him in for those. Otherwise, get a guy with better size, better matchup, more experience, and a Julian Love gives you a lot more versatility, and that's exactly what the Seahawks are trying to be, and it's exactly what they should be. He's a good tackler. He's he's good in coverage, better than Jamal Adams. And he's he, the only thing he struggles, he's not great in run defense, but I think as good as everybody else is in terms of the secondary is with run defense, I'm not concerned about that. And so I'm just that just is an intriguing signing. He's an intriguing talent. It's a great pickup for the team. So big fan of it. I said B plus for him. I'm excited to bring him to the team. So uh, the Seahawks again. As you can tell, there's a lot to cover, but I'm really excited about where this team is going. I give them overall, um, so far, I would say a B plus. I can't quite go A because a linebacker is still such a question mark at that point and it's still really important. Um, and I also think they should do something to upgrade the Jaron Reed spot, in my opinion. But the offseason is still extremely young, and so there's still plenty of time, but they've set themselves up to be able to do whatever they want to do this coming offseason. Um, the draft is going to be huge. Now, this if they bomb the draft, then my view of the offseason changes a little bit, right? As good of a start as it was, this is a huge draft for them, one way or the other. And so, speaking of the draft... There's a lot to get into in terms of that. So I'm going to be starting a new series um, with with the pick, with the pick, with the blank pick, the Seattle Seahawks select dot, dot, dot. All right, so pretty much what the way that's going to work is I'm going to go through each draft pick, the number five pick, the number 20 pick, the number 37 pick, and so on and so forth. I'm only going to do the first three rounds, though, and I'm going to give you guys a breakdown of who I think the Seahawks should be taking at each position. Um, I'll give you the likely scenarios and I'll give you the if this so happens scenarios. We'll break all of that down. We'll be starting to stream on YouTube. So I'm going to start adding and not just the um, just not just the audio component, but I'm trying to get it set up to where I can do that on YouTube so I can show you guys some graphics I have set up for some of these players, these player profiles. You can learn a little bit more about them. We'll break everything down as we always do here on Seahawks 360. So make sure that you are following us on YouTube as well as iTunes. If you are not already, subscribe. Be sure to subscribe, support, give us likes, um, give us comments. Always love to hear your feedback. Well, guys, that's all the time we have for today. So be sure, as you wait on that series, to be sure to follow me on Twitter at CandiceH901. And be sure to follow the show for your news, analysis, polls, everything you need to know about your Seahawks at Ethos Seahawks. 
give us a like, give us a follow. Follow us on YouTube, so make sure you subscribe and like, like I mentioned before. And as always, it has been a pleasure to talk hogs with you. That's it. I'm out. And as always, go hogs.